Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Best of New Scientists 2022. We thought for this week's show we'd gather some panellists and have them reflect on the year their standout news stories of the year, their funniest stories, and what they're looking forward to in science for 2023. We recorded this show as a live online event, and we've got audience questions in the middle of it too, so look out for that. I'm Rowan Hooper, and joining me on the panel are news and digital director Penny Sarche, biomedical news editor Alexandra Thompson, physics features editor Anna Deming, and assistant news editor Sam Wong. The first thing I wanted to ask was what was their standout story of the year and Penny will take us away. For me, the one that I keep going back to this year, and I don't think it made quite the sort of splash that it could have, was uh, DeepMind using its AI AlphaFold to predict Mm. the structure of pretty much all known proteins on our planet. Yeah, I mean, this was huge. Um, We described it as cracking biology's biggest problem. I have no regrets about that headline. I I think that's a really fair description. So the background to this was, you know, to really understand life on Earth and how our bodies work, really all it is is proteins. It's the proteins that do the doing. And we talk about genes a lot because we can sequence those, but the genes are only useful because they're the the building instructions for proteins. And Mm. if we really want to understand life on Earth, it's all proteins. But up until DeepMind stepped in, if you wanted to really understand how life worked, how a particular protein functioned, you first had to work out what its 3D or even 4D structure was. And to do that, you had to use this thing called X-ray crystallography, which jokingly is often referred to as like the dark art of biochemistry. It's just phenomenally difficult to do. It would take you maybe eight years to get a structure for a single protein. And even then you wouldn't necessarily be sure. And so then Income DeepMind, uh, in about 18 months, they predict the structure for every protein recorded by science so far, pretty much, give or take. It's not fully accurate for everyone. There's kind of probabilities they've provided about whether they're certain or not. But I just think this is going to be huge. It's going to transform all of biology, particularly biochemistry. It really opens the door to really probing every question in terms of, you know, why disease happens, what kind of drugs we can use to target proteins, but also just understanding the amazing stuff that life does on our planet. And like I say, it didn't make a huge splash, but it's amazing. And I think it's one of those that's going to have ramifications for for just years and years. Brilliant. Thanks, Penny. Anna, what have you got? Well, I didn't think I could let the event pass without some remark with the appropriate awe and jubilation on the James Webb Space Telescope. Yay. (laughs) 
we had a huge flurry of images from the James Webb and, and are they just going to keep coming? Are we going to do this again next year? I mean, I'm, I'm very happy to. I, I don't see why not really, because people love them. It, it, it really does take your breath away when you see these images and to know of these things happening, it, it just boggles the mind to think of these things of such vast proportions, so far back in time. And, and the fact that it's actually bringing, yeah. it's not just pretty pictures, it's, it's information that's really giving interesting insights that we, of things we didn't know before. Thanks, Anna. That's quite a high bar. But Sam, you've got something quite good to follow that with, haven't you? Yeah. Um, so my science story of the year is the news that um, a nuclear fusion experiment in the US has generated more energy than the energy that was put into it for the first time. So this was at the National Ignition Facility in California, where they use uh, lasers to heat up a little pellet of fuel, hydrogen fuel, that they uh, heat it into a plasma where nuclear fusion can occur. And they, this is the second big announcement of the year. So earlier this year, they announced they'd achieved ignition for the first time. And that means that it's producing enough energy to be self-sustaining. And that was a very exciting milestone, but it didn't produce more energy than was put in. So that, that's obviously a prerequisite for uh, uh, generating power. So now they've um, now they've actually got there. They confirmed it today in a, a press conference. They put in about two megajoules and they got out about three megajoules. So gain of uh, 50%. So that's a really, a really exciting milestone for uh, for nuclear power. There's a lot of progress happening in the field now. Feels like we've reported on a number of really exciting developments this year. In February, yeah. the um, the jet reactor in Oxford produced uh, 59 megajoules of heat, which is the new record for a fusion reactor. And there was another one in um, Korea in September, the reactor that ran for 30 seconds at over 100 million degrees. So all of this is kind of building up towards the next generation of nuclear reactors. There's a big one that a building in France called ITER, and that's going to get going in 2025. They say um, it's cost billions and already sort of really behind schedule, but it does feel like the, the momentum is growing in the field. There's lots of like private companies that are raising lots of money. That three billion has been invested in in private funding and fusion in the last year, so um, it, it does feel like we're we're sort of finally getting somewhere after you know a lot of hype over the past few decades. Well, um, yeah, I mean, the, it's every time we've done a story on this for years, it's there's you're almost obliged to say to use that joke, the meme about you know fusion is is thirty years in the future and always will be. Hmm. Um, I think we can lay that to rest now, can't we? Uh, I think it, it might actually be 30 years in the future. You know, it might actually yeah. be coming. It's well, coming it's, now. It really is. Are, they're still it's saying that it's 30 years in the future. So, uh, and there are lots of hurdles. <laughs> but not that it so, always will be. It is, yeah, no, no, it is I, literally coming now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think we, we sort of can't really make any confident predictions at this stage. Like I, I had a look back in our archive and to see yeah. how long we've been going on about fusion for, and it's at least 50 years or... <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's it's one, in 1973, that uh, we had a story that said, fusion reactors, the ultimate solution, controlled new thermonuclear fusion could generate our energy supplies from the 21st century onwards. After yeah. years of rising and falling fortunes, fusion research is now making its next tentative step forward. And, you know, a lot of it sounds not that different to what we're saying now. So I can yeah. understand this why... This time, um, we, we mean it. <laughs> yeah, this time we mean it. Um, yeah. But yeah, now obviously things are very different now. And we, we, we've got this, um, these amazing achievements. And yeah, I, I, I think we can hopefully put that to bed pretty soon. Okay, thanks, Sam. Um, Alex, what have you you've got? We've had lots of, um, you know, very cool, but very sort of technical stuff. You've got anything human for us? 
I do. So it's not a particular story as a standalone, it's sort of a field, just the advances in organ transplants this year. And there's so much we could potentially talk about here. Just as a very brief synopsis, there were pig kidneys transplanted into brain dead people who the kidneys produce urine for more than three days. And we learned this year that livers can survive for and function for more than 100 years in separate bodies. But yeah. I think really, it's fascinating. But really, the biggest news story of the year has to be something that occurred on the 7th of January, right at the beginning of the year, when a man called David Bennett received a pig's heart. Ultimately, it was a, a sad story. I can't call it my favourite story because he, he died two months after the procedure, but it still marks such a significant step forward towards making xenotransplants potentially a reality and, and the potential that could have for organ transplant waiting lists is just tremendous. Is there anything, you know, coming up next year in, in that field in particular, or is it just all moving on in many different ways? Well, sort of recapping Bennett's case, I mean, he had severe heart failure and he was too ill to go on the organ transplant waiting list. It was a really critical situation. So right. on a compassionate basis, he received this pig's heart, which had been genetically edited. There were four genes that were inactivated and six human genes were inserted. And initially he seemed to be doing pretty well, but about three weeks after the procedure, he did decline and the doctors detected a pig-specific virus, which is related to herpes viruses, which we're probably more familiar with. Mm. And he did die about two months after the procedure, but we don't know exactly what caused his death because he wouldn't have had any immunity to <clears throat> this pig virus. He was also on immune-suppressing drugs to reduce right. the risk of him rejecting the organ. He was also extremely ill when he had the procedure. Right. So it could have been a, a combination of things that contributed to this. But the heart was tested multiple times prior to the transplant and it didn't pick up on this virus. So we do still have a, a way to go, but more sensitive tests are being developed. I think realistically, it's going to be more than a decade until a procedure like this is routine. But we could see trials in, in the next few years. And I think particularly something like pigs, because... On a very basic level, a pig heart is not too dissimilar to a human heart. They have to be genetically edited, but pigs produce relatively large litters. I think there's about eight piglets per litter. So the supply is there. They also grow to adults relatively quickly. So they stand in pretty good stead to potentially be able to utilize them for this. But we need more sensitive tests to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Well, for my pick of the year, I was going to, you know, my favorite thing that happened this year, I was going to go with something like the defeat of President Bolsonaro in Brazil, because that's so important for, for the planet. But it feels a bit negative to pick a negative, if you see what <laughs> I mean. So I'm going to go for something that's not a huge story, but that just I really loved. And that was a story about ants in sub-Saharan Africa. And these were ants that have evolved the ability to treat wounds of their nest mates that come back to the nest so these soldiers here that in this nest they you know they go out they, they they fight other ants or they fight predators and they often get wounded and they limp back to the nest but instead of just dying there's a secretion that they make that has antimicrobial properties and the ants apply this secretion this medicine to the other other ant to the wounded ant so it's it was the first it was basically the first use of medicine in um, certainly in an insect, but in a non-human animal. Um, and it's an incredible thing to see in an ant. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I did love that story. Like the, they take care of their wounded nest mates and, uh, you know, be more ant is a, is a good, 
It's a good <laughs> tagline to live by for next year. Be more ant. <laughs> Let's take a quick break. Are you looking for a unique gift this holiday? What about a gift that helps fight global warming? With Climeworks, you can now remove excess carbon dioxide from the air in the names of your friends and family. So Climeworks is the leader in direct air capture. That's a technology that removes carbon dioxide from the air. And once captured, it's stored underground using the carb fix method. And this is an accelerated natural process that turns carbon dioxide into stone, where it no longer contributes to global warming. So this holiday, choose the gift of climate impact at climeworks.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's go into our um, favorite funny story of the year. So this is the lol moment, the the funniest thing that, that you saw this year. Penny, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so the one that uh, immediately sprung to mind, I have to say, is a story back from July, um, which was looking at a fossil find from about 385 million years ago. And analysis of this fossil, it's kind of like a fish with four legs, suggested that this was a member of the sort of lineage of that great transition when vertebrates uh, started kind of paddling around, coming out onto land, spending a bit of time there. You know, it's how we got to where we are now. Yeah. This was part of that lineage, but decided nah and went back into the sea and doubled <laughs> down. And I, I think, uh, you know, we, we saw a really big response to this on the internet, quite a lot of jokes. I think it really chimed. Who didn't have a moment in 2022 that just thought, oh, maybe we yeah. would have been better just, off just go back to the <laughs> staying sea. in the sea? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was a really amazing story, actually. Um, the name is a hard one. It's Kikitania Wake. It's uh, related to some of those really iconic sort of first land vertebrates. And what's really clear is that it did have four limbs that it could at some point have stood up on dry land on. But in the meantime, since it had done that, it had actually uh, evolved back into the water. It had lost all of the muscle attachment points on its limbs. So there was no way it could sort of support its way out of the water. And not only that, it had sort of doubled down once it got back into the sea. uh, It evolved to be an even more efficient uh, swimmer than before and adapted to a life. So not only did it say, now I'm not doing that, it it just (laughs) it really went for it. And so aside from the kind of funny thing, that the, the thing that sort of charms me about this is, of course, evolution isn't directional there's not one yeah. clear direction all kinds of marvelous things happen and and that story really made me smile yeah yeah of course that's the that is the great point about it isn't it people often criticize evolution thinking oh you know that this that it's directional it has some purpose but of course mm. it doesn't and this is a fantastic example demonstrating that very cool uh, alex what have you got so a story that amused me this year came from research from northwestern university and One of the most common symptoms of a mild coronavirus infection is a loss of your smell. So these researchers wondered if there could be a correlation between people going on Amazon and complaining because their supposedly scented candle is completely odourless with a rise in reported coronavirus cases in the community. 
So these poor researchers trawled through more than 9,000 Amazon reviews of candles. <laughs> I mean, they slightly honed their search. They were looking at the four best-selling candles from the brand Yankee Candle, but it spanned September 2018 to December 2021, more than 9,000 reviews, but they did find a correlation. So for every 100,000 new reported coronavirus cases in the US, there was a 0.25 percentage point <laughs> increase in these reviews, which doesn't sound very substantial. But when they ran a statistical analysis, it suggests that it wasn't a chance finding. They were just sitting around thinking, I know, let's let's look on Amazon for candle reviews, people complaining. I'd love to know like how that came about in the first place, that idea. <laughs> Well, I think they were looking for less expensive ways of, as opposed to testing to track community transmission of the coronavirus. Mm. I don't know if enough people buy scented candles with regularity right. to be able yeah. to rely on this as a technique. I also don't know if everyone would necessarily take the time to complain, but it is a, an interesting idea. It could be another tool in the arsenal. Great. Now, look, um, I was going to talk for my funniest story of the year about a story we had about monkeys that we're using stones as sex tools. But I actually, you know, on, on reflection, I don't really want to go into that anymore than, than that. I think that's quite enough to say about that story. So um, then I remembered another story we had that just stopped me cold when I saw the headline. It was North America is being invaded by alien earthworms. And when I looked at the journal paper, it turns out that I, and I had no idea about this, but large amounts of North America are basically free of earthworms and have been, well, they have been for about 12,000 years since the last ice, ice age, which wiped them all out. And then they just, you know, the ecosystems then developed after the ice age without worms. But in the last couple of hundred years, with people moving around, you know, horticulture and stuff, earthworms have started invading uh, those very, very established ecosystems again. So there is a literal invasion of um, North America by alien earthworms. And, it, you know, and it, I thought, oh, that's well, actually, it's not very funny now I think about it, but <laughs> you know, it's initially, it's initially it's funny. Yeah. Cause they are causing quite a lot of damage to these, uh, you know, existing ecosystems. But yeah, I guess the headline was quite funny. <laughs> Okay, right. Is everyone ready? We're going to move to some questions from the audience now. So let's have a look. This is from Sharon Lynn. Will robots replace humans in healthcare in the near future? I'm not sure about the near future. I'm also not sure about a total replacement either. I mean, mm -hmm. for example, um, University College London uses what we call Da Vinci robots. And I think when you imagine a robot, you think of sort of a character from a Will Smith movie. Yeah. But this is um, actually a, a robot with six arms and at the end of the arms are little scissors and sort of pliers, and it's controlled by a surgeon with a console. And already this can cut away advanced prostate cancerous tissue, and it's helped hundreds of men, and it helps to preserve any surrounding healthy tissue. It reduces side effects, things like incontinence, urinary incontinence, erectile dysfunction can be quite common with prostate cancer surgery. It reduces the risk of that. The individual who's been operated on is in hospital for a reduced amount of time. Their recovery is quicker. And that's with these da Vinci robots. So they are in use. I'm not sure they'll ever fully replace. And I don't think in the near future that will definitely not be the case. But um, I also, it's interesting to see how sort of people being treated in hospital would, would react to a, a robot nurse. That's well, another question. I, I did think of this actually, because, you know, it says, will robots replace humans in the near future? But 
they have replaced them already in some situations. Like you think of some care homes, in, say in Japan, where there are comfort robots that are used that do provide a lot of sort of emotional support to people, especially people with Alzheimer's, say. So yeah, but of course they're not going to replace. They're not going to replace us quite yet. We're going to cling on a bit longer. I mean, the more pertinent question is: Will the robots replace science journalists? <laughs> well, there is a story. There's a question coming from Richard Swede here about science journalism. Actually, so maybe we'll just have a quick go at this one. How might the quality of science reporting in the media be improved? For example, the potential benefits of the new Alzheimer's drug seem to have been pretty exaggerated outside of new scientists, of course. What do you think of that, Penny? I think um, uh, one of the things, and I would say this, um, that I found really promising in the last few years is I think it's really obvious now that audiences online aren't expecting everything to be free. There's a stronger appetite for quality journalism and people are willing to pay for it. And I think that's really important, obviously, because I like to be paid for, for doing work. But also, you know, that, of course, raises questions about access because, you know, responsible science journalism is important for everybody. But I think when it is a product that actually depends on being good and quality and well written, and that's what we pride ourselves at New Scientist, uh, we pride ourselves on that, then that kind of leads the the pathway towards people being able to um, actually have a business that depends on them producing quality journalism. I think, you know, we've seen more of a, a step away from this kind of just bashing stuff out, the most shocking headline possible. Mm. Uh, is the best one and it doesn't really matter if it's accurate I I don't want to sing (laughs) big text praises too much but increasingly we're seeing things with like uh, Google keeps updating its algorithm to try and actually find more quality content content that's written by experts that's a real thing now so there is a trend I am hopeful let's look to the future panel Um, Let's look to what you're looking forward to next year. Penny, do you want to kick us off? So I'm going to say a surprising word is COVID-19, but I'm not Ah! looking forward to COVID-19 next year. (laughs) What I'm looking forward to is all the science that's going on about it at the moment. So, (laughs) you know, it's still here. It's still causing problems. There are hundreds of vaccines in development. They, you know, the the goal would be one that actually is really good at blocking transmission because we've already got ones that are, are pretty good at uh, warding off the worst symptoms. But also, there's loads of treatments that are still being trialed and tested. So, treatments for people who do get severe COVID nineteen or long COVID are just going to get better and better. I'm really hopeful about that. There's also still, you know, these big unknown questions of, you know, what's the long term effects on our immunity or the brain of having the virus? What's the long term effects of having multiple infections? And science is just going to start revealing these answers. So, you know, I I looked the other week, I was chatting to Alex about it. The number of papers published around COVID-19 this year is huge. It dwarfs Mm. pretty much every other area you can think of in medical science. So, you know, aside from how countries manage it, the whole kind of political stress and and logistical and economic and and everything around it, the science there, all of that great research that's being done, I have a lot of hope in that. I'm looking forward to seeing more of it. Yeah, let's hope um, that really does kick on across all other sorts of viruses, all the other sorts of problems that we have that we can use that all the things we've learned. Mm. Anna, what are you looking forward to next year? I'm going to be looking out on developments in quantum computing. Mm. Um, we've seen huge, I mean, there are a lot of things that could have chosen, but quantum computing is somewhere where we have seen a lot of 
progress we've seen um we had the big story the year before with quantum supremacy and the claim that they were doing something that a regular computer would not have been able to do in a feasible amount of time they've got bigger they're getting more bits that you can access them on the cloud they're getting attached to supercomputers but i think the thing that is i find really exciting is people are starting to progress with error correction in quantum computing the whole benefit of quantum computers is the way the qubits the quantum bits can be in one state and another at the same time which empowers right. a different way of doing the calculations but it is also very fragile these quantum states are very fragile they're very vulnerable to the environment and so you can um get them flipping in uh, ways you didn't want them to and errors creep in and that impedes on the power of your computer but as i said people are making progress to get around ways of to correct errors that are crept in ways of making quantum computers more fault tolerant making them more robust the the bits themselves and the the progress is exciting because it's a progress in quantum computing, but it's also the physics that they are um, working with to make this progress. So we're, they're, they're working with um, new types of superconductors and ideas around harnessing Majorana states. So these are the hark to fermion, uh, the particles that can be their own antiparticle and qu- all sorts of quasi-particles. So quasi-particles being things that you just dream up to try and describe how lots of quantum particles behave when they all herd together all kinds of quasi-particles ways of reigning in chaos in quantum systems i mean these mm. it's really exciting stuff so yeah the quantum computer ramifications are exciting but there's there's lots of other ramifications from the kind of research going on in that field so i'll be keeping an eye on that very cool um sam so I'm looking forward to hearing about um, new innovative ways of producing food in ways that's less damaging to our environment. Mm. Um, so one example is um, Michael LePage has written about in our preview of 2023, which is coming up in the, um, the first issue after Christmas. Uh, he's written about this company called Solar Foods, which plans to turn carbon dioxide from the air into food. And they're building the first commercial scale factory to do this in Finland. And so the idea is you, you bypass photosynthesis altogether. Um, you grow these vats of bacteria and the bacteria use hydrogen as, a, as an energy source. So the factory is going to use renewable energy to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And hydrogen is added to vats with the CO2 and ammonia and some other things that the bacteria need. And then they produce this, um, this yellow powder called soline that's 65% protein. And it can be used as an ingredient in all kinds of foods from meat alternatives to um, cereals and snacks. And um, you might wonder, well, why why do this if, uh, you know, plants, they turn CO2 into, into food. But we know that, that conventional agriculture is really disastrous for the environment, uses huge amounts of land. So we destroy forests and, and other habitats, uses lots of water and produces lots of greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. So uh, according to um, this company, they're saying that, you know, this producing food this way will use, you know, 100 times less water or 20 times less land than plant crops even and the comparison with with meat obviously is even more favorable yeah i'm I'm looking forward to hearing more about that kind of thing yeah i'm looking forward to eating this stuff some (laughs) microbial food um Mm. you know solar foods microbial protein i mean i guess we i do eat it a lot in terms of corn and um you know Mm. that sort of meat substitutes that are made in that way but all the other things that are going to come along i actually really want to try some of this and and see what sort of new cuisine you can make out and that's something for your cooking column as well sam (laughs) yeah definitely so um yeah 
Maddie, our environment reporter, recently got to try some of this um, uh, sort of cultivated meat while she was in Sharm el-Sheikh covering the COP conference. Yeah, um, yeah I, I'd be really interested in trying that stuff as well. And yeah. there's, there's lots of questions about whether cultivated meat is really going to be a sustainable solution or not. But um, mm. but I think, you know, th there's lots of companies doing really inventive things. And we, we do need to be trying all sorts of things in order to come up with alternative ways of, uh, of doing things. Absolutely. Great. Alex, what have you got? I am looking forward to hearing more about gene replacement therapies. So we should have some trial readouts next year, potentially even a treatment approval. I'll quickly talk about one that I find particularly heartwarming because unfortunately children with these rare genetic disorders, it tends to be children that are affected and they can be very severe. So there's a condition called AADC deficiency, which is when the DDC gene in the brain is affected and it affects the production of the neurotransmitters, dopamine and serotonin. And without those neurotransmitters, children can barely walk or talk. Some even struggle to hold their heads. But this firm called PTC Therapeutics has created a gene therapy that infuses into the brain and replaces the faulty gene with working copies that function as they should. And it's delivered via a virus which has been modified not to cause harm. And it was a very small trial, just 10 children, because this is such a rare condition, there's only 150 documented cases worldwide, but all improved to their motor and cognitive function. One went from barely being able to walk to riding a horse. So it's just fantastic. Yeah. And PTC is going to seek FDA US approval by mid 2023. So I look forward to hearing that. It's already approved in the EU and the UK, but there's so much. There's a, a gene therapy trial for haemophilia B that's showing promise. We should hear more about that. Children with sickle cell disease have been enrolled onto a trial for CRISPR. So hopefully we'll hear more about that. So it's a really exciting space. Well, yeah, and also just related to that, um, just today there was this um, news about, was it 100,000 newborn babies have mm. had their genome sequenced? Mm -hmm. Which just when you start to think about, you know, just in our, in, well, in my reporting lifetime, you know, the ability to sequence 100,000 human genomes like, like that, just like that in an affordable trial, let alone all the information you're going to get. And that's all about predicting these rare childhood diseases and seeing if we can do something about them uh, as early as possible. So yeah, loads of good, hopeful stuff coming along the line with that. Um, I'm going to change gear for my thing next year, which I'm thinking about. I think that's going to be something really exciting is um, space travel. And, you know, and obviously it's controversial. I don't you know. I actually don't even know if I could argue strongly for its merits or not but the fact is when it happens it is very cool and exciting and next year we are going to see some really interesting stuff um, like SpaceX has built uh, the Starship so this is a gigantic rocket it's going to be mostly reusable and that's going to go to the moon next year with people on it so it's going to only orbit the moon but there's going to be you know crude trips including tourists going into deep space can you imagine what that's going to be like when we see pictures of people flying around the moon? <laughs> and then even, you know, in the next couple of years after that, we're going to, well, we'll probably get people on the moon. But for next year, I, almost certainly we're going to have people flying in some of the biggest rockets ever built. So it's not just SpaceX. There's a bunch of other companies that are, are doing stuff with um, really big rockets. So, yeah, putting aside the sort of macho uh, big rocket side of it, it's just going to be amazing to see people doing this kind of space travel. And I think it really will kick on 
in a whole load of different directions and the moon is coming into play as well in lot with lots of different missions we're going to see rovers going down on the moon all over the place so it's going to be a really big year for space flight that's all for this week thanks for listening and do subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts We're back on Christmas Day and on that show we've got a review of our favourite long reads of the year. This is where we go through our favourite five feature stories of the year and we'll see you then. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.